Good morning and happy Sabbath today, church. Wasn't that music just wonderful? Amen. Our sermon today is called Love Wins, and we are going to be exploring Exodus chapters 33 and 34. So if you want to go ahead and get ready, you can go ahead. Um, if you've never been here before to church um, and seen me preach, or if you've never watched online, um, I end up doing this every time I take off my shoes to preach, and I do so because a few weeks we talked about it, um, where Moses meets God at the burning bush, and God tells him to take off your shoes for where you are standing is holy ground. And I believe that when we come together to worship God, that we are standing on holy ground. And so, on this holy ground, we are going to get ready to worship I am so excited to share with you guys um, some of the things that I've been looking at and really diving deep into. Um, but before we get there, let's go ahead and let's start with prayer. Pray with me, please. Father, Lord, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the gorgeous day outside. Thank you for the awesome music. Thank you that there are worshipers here, Lord, that we are here together as one. And I just thank you so much for that. I ask that as we go through this, uh, this part of the series today, that you would let these be your words, Lord. Your character is so good, and I pray that uh, we can see that in today's sermon. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. This sermon wasn't originally planned in our series. To be honest with you, I had to argue my case to talk about this because it's something I'm so excited about and I'm so passionate about that I've been learning about recently that I wanted to share it with you guys. I believe it's something that we need to talk about, especially right now. I believe that this section, Exodus 33 and 34, is so foundational that to leave it out would be injustice, to say it very plainly. And so, welcome to the originally unplanned sermon in our series, and we're going to explore today over and over and over again why love wins and mercy triumphs. And so, I'm excited, like I said, for you guys to explore this with me. Uh, if you were here with us last week, you know that Pastor Fred talked about the golden calf. And if you weren't, well, I just told you what we talked about. So last week we explored the golden calf and Israel um, making an idol almost as soon as God is making a covenant with Moses. And we see that almost as soon as God's making this covenant, there's rebellion almost immediately. And the next thing we know, God doesn't want to go with the Israelites anymore into the promised land. And do I blame him? No, not really, to be perfectly honest with you. Let's explore this together. Exodus 33, we're going to start in verse 1 through 3. So this is Exodus 33, starting in verse 1. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land that I promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you along the way. At this, the people break down and they start mourning because even though an angel is promised to drive out all these people from the land that God has promised to them, they understand that it's not the same as God's presence. They understand and realize that they've done messed up because God no longer wants to send his presence with them into this land. And so God tells them to wait until he's decided what to do. And it's an interesting reaction from the people considering they've been complaining this whole time. We've talked about this before. Like, you keep complaining and you keep, like, saying how God isn't good and now he says he's not going to go with you. And now you're upset? Like, something doesn't add up to me. Obviously, the Israelites understand something about God's presence that is so integral to who this is. So I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. I'm like, okay, what happens next? God says he's not going to go, and they're breaking down in mourning. Well, it's not what you might expect. It's not what I expected. Exodus 33, starting in verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside of the camp. And whenever Moses went to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent." And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. So this tent of meeting um, we're going to find is pre-tabernacle. This is like the OG, like the original tabernacle before the tabernacle was a thing, which we're going to talk about in the next couple weeks. Um, and so anyone, I love this, verse 7, go ahead and throw it up there. Verse 7, anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside of the camp. I just love this. Like, just stop for a moment. Like, anyone who wanted to talk to God, they could go. And a lot of times when we talk about this, God's presence, um, we think about it as solely being between Moses and God. But we see here that God spoke with anyone and everyone. I just love that. Um, it just shows us this window of availability that God was giving to the Israelites. But I really want to focus on this moment in which Moses goes and has a conversation with God in the tent of meeting. Because I think it's going to give us a small snippet of what it was like to be in the presence of God. So what happens between God and Moses? Well, I'm glad you asked. Exodus 33, verses 12 through 17. Go ahead and read it with me. It says, Moses said to the Lord, Lord, you've been telling me lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and, I have found and you have found favor with me. 
But Lord, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. At this, the Lord replied and he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses turned to him and said, but if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us from here. How will anyone know that you were pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And I just got to stop and ask, like, Moses, who are you? Like a few weeks ago when we talked about Moses at the burning bush is a very different Moses than we see here in the tent of meeting. Moses is voluntarily asking to go on versus at the bush when he tried to say that he was a nobody. Moses wants to know God. He wants to know him versus at the burning bush when he asked God, who are you? Moses acknowledges that the people will know it is God versus at the burning bush. Do you see, do you see this pattern? At the burning bush, when he questions if the people are going to even believe Moses when he speaks. Moses acknowledges that he is speaking well with God. You can see it's a much different compared to at the burning bush when he questions his ability to speak. And last but not least, Moses says, go with us. Not go with them, not go with the Israelites, the people you chose. He said, go with us. Compared to at the burning bush, when Moses tries to have God send someone else. Moses has changed. The Moses we knew at the burning bush is a very different Moses than we see here in the tent of meeting. We see that he recognizes that he's a child of God. He's part of this plan. We see that he's gotten to know God on a more, uh, on a deeper level. We see that the people now know who God is too. We see that Moses recognizes the role that he needs to do and that he has to follow. And he recognizes that God has covered Moses' perceived Notice I say perceived inabilities. And I just love this about Moses. Moses has changed because change happens when we are willing to go despite our doubts. And Moses is the perfect example. Change happens when we are willing to go despite our doubts. It happens when it's not our will, but when it's God's will. And it happens when we understand the bigger picture. And Moses understands this bigger picture. He sees the covenant, this promise made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he sees that at the end of the day, God's love for his people has to win. God's love has to win. In verse 17, or excuse me, in verse 15, it says, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with this? And I love this part. It says, what else will distinguish 
me and your people from all the other people on the earth. The reason why the people are so upset that God said he's not going to go with them, his presence, is simply because they understand that it's the thing that distinguishes them from others around them. It's the thing that makes them different. It's the thing that they have that other groups don't. God's love for his people, his presence, has to avail. God's love has to win in order for his mission, his will to happen. John T. Child, who wrote Collective Evolution, says this about change. He says, there's a huge difference between wanting to change and being willing to change. Almost everybody wants to change for the better, but very few are willing to take the steps necessary to create that change. Very few are willing to take the steps necessary to make that change. Moses is, uh, understands that if he needs to take the necessary steps to change, he has to go a step further. And he does so, and we see this in verse 18. And what has become one of my favorite verses in the, in the Bible, Exodus 33, verses 18, this says, and then Moses said, show me your glory. It's this moment of faith. And God agrees to go with Moses already. He says, you have my presence. And Moses takes a step further. He says, okay, now I want you to show me your glory. Do you remember the burning bush? Moses was hiding his face at God's glory. And now we see him openly asking, God, show me your glory. In order to go places you've never been, you have to do things you've never done. In order to go places you've never been, you have to do things you've never done. I'm a huge traveler. I love international travel. Um, I've currently been to more countries than I have states, if that tells you anything. And I travel quite a bit in the U.S. too. Um, but in order to do things I've never done and go places that I've never been, in order to go places I've never been, I have to do things I've never done. I have to get on planes that I've never gone on before. I have to be willing to plan things and do things that I've never done if I want to see places that I've never been. And Moses does this. He says, you know what? In order to go places I've never been, I have to do things I've never done. And God, show me your glory. And this is such a crucial moment. It's a moment of clarity. And so Moses makes the arrangements with God. They talk about it. God asks Moses to meet him on Mount Sinai for another four weeks. Last week we talked about four weeks he was up there and they were breaking the covenant. Now we see him asking for another four weeks. And I'm curious to find out what the Israelites are going to do this time. So he asks for another four weeks and they go... And they meet up, and it says in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, 
flow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands of generations and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And like I said, this is a crucial moment. God has asked, or Moses has asked for God's glory, but he has received another gift as well. So Moses asks, okay, give me your glory. And God says, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to give you my glory, but I'm also going to explain to you my character. And there's so much that I want to share about this section with you about God's character because there's so much there. Um, But I'm actually going to let this video explain for me um, this tension that we're going to see between God's mercy and his justice. So God's mercy and his justice. This is the Bible Project talking about God's character. Take a look. see why it's repeated so often. These attributes of God are really lovely. And the statement goes on. He maintains loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He will bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth. Okay, hold on. This last part takes a bit of a turn. We're first talking about God's love, and suddenly it's about his judgment on grandkids. So, Is God merciful or vengeful? Yeah, great question. Let's see these words in a larger context by looking at something important in Genesis, the first scroll of the Bible. There, God chooses one family, the Israelites, from among the nations. And he promises that he's going to rescue the whole world through this family somehow. And Genesis ends with the family of Abraham in Egypt. Then the book of Exodus begins, and this book has two large movements. Right, okay, so this first movement of Exodus, God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt. And in the second movement, God leads them to Mount Sinai, where they camp out for a year. And God invites this whole nation into a partnership called a covenant, so that they can be shaped by his values and character. And represent God to all the other nations. Exactly. Now, this whole Mount Sinai movement in Exodus can be broken up into four literary units. First, there's the actual ceremony, where the Israelites agree to be God's partners. And God sets up the terms of the relationship, starting with the Ten Commandments. The first two are... Don't give your allegiance to other gods, and don't make any idol images of God. Seems simple enough. After that, God shows Moses detailed blueprints for building this sacred home so that God can come and live among them. All right, and then comes a really long narrative about the building of that sacred home. But you missed something. Right in between these sections is the story that has our description about God's character. 
The story begins with Moses going up on the mountain, writing down the partner agreement, as the Israelites are at the base of the mountain, violating the first two commands. That's ridiculous. They're breaking the covenant vows while the ceremony is still going on. Yes, and so God is hurt and angry, and he warns Moses that this betrayal will keep on happening. God is ready to call it quits. But what about his promise to rescue the world through them? Yeah, exactly. This is what Moses brings up. And so what is God going to do? Should he end the partnership, which would be fair? Or will he be faithful to his promise to Abraham and show them mercy? Yeah, exactly. Now, look back at the words that we began with, and you'll see they're about this very tension between God's mercy and his justice. Okay, so the statement opens like this. A God compassionate and gracious. In Hebrew, this line has three words that rhyme. El Rahum Dachanun. And the line overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness matches the first, as it also has three Hebrew words. Rav Chesed Ve'emet. Each of those lines have two attributes of God, and they surround a fifth attribute, that God is slow to anger. Right. Now, that's the first half of this description of God. Then comes the second half. God maintains loyal love for thousands. And how is he going to remain loyal to people who keep rebelling against him? By forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Uh, but God's forgiveness doesn't mean people can just do whatever they want. Right. God's mercy is balanced in what follows. Yet he won't declare innocent the guilty. He'll bring the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and grandchildren to the third and the fourth. The third and the fourth what? Well, it's referring to generations of people who repeat their ancestors' rebellion against God. They'll get what they deserve. But notice, this small number of generations contrasts that massive number up above. God's loyal love to thousands. Right. And then check this out. God's forgiveness of iniquity in this line is contrasted with his justice on iniquity in this line. Okay, and all those lines are surrounding a central line here about God's justice. He will not declare innocent the guilty. So while God is slow to anger, he is also just. Right. This is the tension that these two sentences are exploring. How does a faithful and loyal God deal with such a rebellious people? This is the challenge God faces in this story, and it's the same challenge he faces in the whole biblical story as he works to rescue the world through this family. With that in mind, we can take a closer look at these five attributes that God declares about himself to Moses. A God compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. And we'll see how each one leads us deeper into the character of God and into the story of the Bible. The tension between God's mercy and God's justice has been a tension that has been around since the very beginning of time. Go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. It will also be up on the screen. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Surely you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. 
For God knows when you eat from, from when you eat it from it, your eyes will be open and you will be more like God, knowing good and evil. From the beginning of time, God's character has been called into question by Satan. And it's this tension that we talk about because if Satan can distort God's character and humanity can ultimately question God's love, Satan wins. If he can get humanity to abandon God by calling question to his character, it's Satan who wins in separating those from Christ. So in this moment of glory with Moses, God takes a moment to talk about his character, to set the record straight, to, to tell about who he is. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So how do we reconcile that with the second section that talks about not leaving the guilty unpunished? How do we reconcile that with him talking about punishing the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation? How do we do that? Well, when we look a little bit deeper, we find that the third and the fourth generation in that time was actually an idiom that means whatever number it takes. So God is saying here, whatever number, however many generations continue to rebel against me, whatever that is, so be it. But notice how small that number is, like they said in the video, compared to the thousands of generations a love for. This simple numerical difference shows that God's mercy triumphs over his justice every single time. Every single time, God's mercy overrides his justice. And now I want to take a moment and I want to talk about generational sin because if we don't read this right, we can get a very skewed idea of who God is and what he's trying to say here. In this instance and several instances throughout the Bible, generational sin does not mean N-O-T, capitalized, not mean kids are punished because of what their parents have done and vice versa. Generational sin is the sin in which generation to generation continues to perpetuate the same behavior. If you have abuse that happens in your family and it starts with your grandparents and your parents continue it and then you continue it, that is the generational sin that we are talking about. It's when a generation chooses knowing that this is a sin and perpetuates that behavior. At the same time, we also see that in the Bible, it talks about that each person is responsible for their own sin. In Deuteronomy 24, 16, it says, Parents are not to be put to death for the sin of their children, nor children put to death for their sin of their parents because each will die for their own sin. So it's very important in this section here that when we talk about generational sin, that we're not talking about what your parents did are now affecting you in life. No, it's when you perpetuate that 
that abuse, that lying, that deceit that you see in your family and you decide to carry it on, that's the general, generational sin in which you're talking about. In Jeremiah 32, it talks about that, yes, it feels like the sin of our parents are placed in our laps. However, you reward, and this is talking to God, you reward each person according to their conduct as their deeds deserve. This disproportionate comparison of God's mercy versus his justice to thousands of generations outweighs it completely. And it outweighs it in a most beautiful way. It's the reason why God continues to forgive the Israelites, even though they won't stop complaining. It's the reason why God keeps coming back, even though they've messed up. It's because God's love, his love wins. His love wins for us over and over and over, over his desire to punish us, over his desire to prove a point. God's love wins. And God promises to be with us, like we talked about last week. He wants to hold our hand. He wants to keep going with us because his love and God's mercy wins every single time. He wants us to walk alongside him to trust that he's got it under control. Does that mean that the road is going to be easy? Absolutely not. I wish I could tell you differently, but I would not be staying true to what the Bible has said. The, the life that we live is not easy because of the sin that perpetuates it. But God promises that he will be with us. The Israelites understood that in the moment God said that he couldn't go with them, that they had messed up. They understood that this was not okay. Yet when Moses asked for forgiveness on behalf of these people, God's love and his mercy triumphs. And he says, all right, I will go with you because my mercy is greater than my justice and he goes with them. It's the reason why God promises a savior to Adam and Eve after they eat that fruit. It's the reason why God saves Noah and his family from all the other people who were doing generational sin compared to Noah's family who had decided to stop the cycle. It's the reason why God shows up in Egypt to rescue the people after years and years and years they finally cry out to him and ask for forgiveness. It's the reason why God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Because at the end of the day, God loves wins in every moment it can. 1 John 1.9 says this. It says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, God's mercy covers us. 
every single time. Do you see why I didn't want to leave this section out? We have to talk about this. There are people here that might be listening that think that, oh, I've done so many bad things. Like, there's no way that God could love a sinner like me. Really? Because the Bible tells me differently. The Bible tells me that if you ask for forgiveness, he is faithful to forgive you because his mercy wins every single time. God's love wins. It's the reason why when they break the covenant, right as it's being created and they're worshiping this golden calf, God says, my love for you wins. Am I upset? Yes. Am I hurt? Yes. But when you ask for forgiveness, I can't help because I love you so much. I love you so, so much. We see this Moses, this guy, that he understands something so vital that he's not willing to let God go. He says, don't let us go because if we don't go with you, don't send us from here at all. It's not worth it. Our life is not worth it going to do this thing that you've promised us if you're not here with us. You have to be with us because your love wins in the most profound and the most beautiful way, beautiful way possible. And God's continual presence can be seen not just in Old Testament. This isn't just an old story that I'm here to tell you. This isn't just, oh, it happened in the Bible. This just isn't New Testament. We hit Jesus like, oh, that was Jesus. Great. No, God's presence and his love wins for us yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. As long as our God is God, he is going to have his love win for us forever. It's so beautiful, this picture that he has. God's love wins, and nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ if we choose so. I hope that as we sing our last song, that you can let the idea of God's love winning wash over you. I pray that you understand that never once has God ever left you. Never once has he said, you know what, enough's enough, you've done so much bad, I don't care if you're asking for forgiveness, I'm out. No, that's not what he says. He says, you ask for forgiveness, I am faithful and I will forgive you because my love for you wins. My love wins. So never once has God let us go. Never once has he given up on us. And I pray that whatever is keeping you from the presence of God today, that you ask for his forgiveness, that you get right with God because God's love wins. It's as simple as that. And I just, if you'd like to take that promise that he is faithful and just to forgive us if we ask, that God's presence goes with us if we ask him, that his mercy and his love win. I ask that you stand with me in this last song. For those that are you that are joining us online, sing with us, because never once has God ever left alone. God's love wins.